Now, Durer's rhinoceros is the common name for a woodcut by German painter and printmaker Albrecht Dürer, perhaps the most important artist of the Renaissance outside of Italy. The image of the rhinoceros was inspired by a written description of an Indian rhino that had arrived in Lisbon in 1515. And although Dürer never actually saw the rhino himself, he understood the value and appeal of this exotic curiosity, and so he created between four and 5,000 prints of the animal as affordable art objects for a growing collector base. Dr Thomas Eser is an art historian and director of the Dürer Museum in Nuremberg in Germany, where Dürer lived and worked. He explained to me how important it was for Dürer, who was a very commercial artist at that time, to protect his work, and in particular his monogram, A.D. Albrecht Dürer. Dürer was not the very first to use a monogram on a piece of art, but... Dürer was the very first that used it always. Even his earliest etchings and engravings and woodcuts, this monogram was added to so that after some years, uh, European collectors did immediately know this is Dürer made. And this is something he made, yeah, it's kind of marketing, very modern form of marketing. He was the very first one that did this very consequently always when he makes a print. It's important for the value of his prints. Mm -hmm. A seller did know it's by Dürer. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, in Venice, for instance, there had been uh, faking uh, artists that used his prints and his uh, images not only to copy them, but also they put the AD on that. And that, of course, was a criminal act. Not to use it, that would be nowadays so, that copyright is also on content, not only on the, the signature. But in Dürer's time, the signature was the criminal act to imitate that. So he went to court to protect his monogram. Yes, he even uh, found the emperor that gave him a privilege that made it for him sure that he was the exclusive one to use the AD. Also a very modern uh, legislative process. So although people could copy his print and make copies of that and sell them, they couldn't put the AD on it, which signified that this was done by Albrecht Dürer. This is the point. And there we are in European history and a very important point of changing. People started to be interested in who made it. Not in, was it good made, is it good, is it very expensive or cheap? No, the question of authenticity, who is the author, started to arise. Now, as I said, while Dürer never actually saw the rhinoceros, he did, however, go to great lengths to closely observe other great curiosities of his time. One such adventure began after he had heard rumours of a beached whale in Zealand off the Netherlands. This fascinating story is documented in a book by author Philip Hoare, entitled Albert and the Whale. Recently, myself and Richard got an opportunity to speak with Philip Hoare at the Chester Beatty Museum in Dublin. And he's a very interesting man, is he not, Richard? Yes, Derek. Philip is Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Southampton. Mm -hmm. Now, he's written 11 non-fiction books, and one of them is called Albert and the Whale, and it won the 2009 Samuel Johnson Prize for Non-Fiction. The book was about Durer's journey 
to Antwerp from Nuremberg in the hope of seeing the carcass of a whale that he heard was beached there. Now Philip, like Durer, is a man of many parts and he has two great interests from childhood, Durer and Wales. He is indeed a man who straddles the great divide between the sciences and the arts. A fascinating man to talk to, Derek, I think. Indeed. I am born in Southampton, brought up there, educated in London, but my, my early career was all about punk rock. I managed bands and I worked for an indie record label and released records and got very excited all about that. And then I realised I wasn't very good at doing that. Um, I was losing lots of um, money and things. And uh, so I became a writer. Uh, started out writing for magazines and newspapers, Guardian and... Um, Harpers and Queen, but um, yes, then I began to write biography. People like Noah Coward wrote a, wrote a study of Oscar Wilde. Um, early interest in Ireland, I'm Irish descent. My great-grandfather was born in the Strawberry Beds here and a big family um, there. I, I had this kind of Damascene conversion to, to the sea when I was in London after my rock and roll career had sort of faltered into the gutter and I wasn't looking up at the stars, I was looking at the DHSS. I, I'd never learnt to swim, although I was born and brought up in Southampton, right by the sea, I can hear the sea from my house and, you know, the foghorns and the seagulls. I really was so scared of the sea. So I started going to a swimming pool in, in inner city London, really sort of Cray Twins territory, you know, this very strange terracotta building uh, which was a sunken pool and, uh, and, I, and, I, uh, and, and I sort of tried to teach myself to swim which is very very difficult if you are really scared of the water and this woman she was a water goddess she was literally sent from, from some watery kingdom to claim me for her own because she saw what I was doing she was aged about certainly in her 80s and uh, she saw that I was just floundering about and she just took me on and she did all the things that my PE masters had never done it's just like, You've got to just make friends with the water, put your face in the water, mm. break this sort of liminal membrane, you know, this thing, this barrier of fear. And I suddenly realised that I wasn't going to die and that I could let the water bear me up. And I started just, from then on, I swam every day. I, I've swum at the 40 foot twice today already. I started at six o'clock this morning. I've just come back from it again now. Oh my goodness. Um, so I really love outdoor swimming, you know. Um, I, hate, I hate the phrase wild swimming. There's only one wild swimmer, and that's Oscar, and he was a great swimmer, and he did swim at the 40-foot drop. But um, so I, I, I think, you know, I don't like the idea of the commodification of swimming. It needs to be, you, you shouldn't have to go and buy loads of gear to be able to get in the water. But anyway, the connection for me between that and where we are now is the whale, because a very early object of, of, of obsession for me was the whale. And I was growing up in the late 60s, early 70s, when the Save the Whale campaigns were beginning. And I persuaded my father to drive us to um, an oceanarium in Windsor Safari Park. Oh. It's now Legoland. And uh, they had a captive orca there. They had. I was brought there on a school trip and I touched it as it happens. I reached out to have a photograph wearing a horrible blue jacket, me reaching in and touching and feeling the skin of the whale, which was extraordinary. Really like a wetsuit, but it was in a tiny pool, a tiny enclosure. Horrible. Well, that, like the woman in the pool in Hackney, the, that whale was, again, a sort of a, a real mechanism for change for me because when I saw this captive orca, his name was Ramu. Okay. Um, and he, he was in that... It's just an overgrown concrete pool, That's isn't it? Was, just, yeah. a, just terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. You know, it could never go 
vertical, you know, killer whales often spy hop, you know, and this whale could never go vertical in its own, and of course it had no social culture at all. Seeing that what, what was done to that whale just completely changed my relationship to the natural world and, and the way we manipulate it and, and abuse it. Um, and in fact, I couldn't actually even address the notion of the whale after that. I felt so weighed down with this kind of collective guilt, you know. Um, so it wasn't until the year 2000 when I went to Cape Cod, I'd gone out of a book tour, I'd published a book about I think it was my biography of Noel Coward. Anyway, I was in America. I went to Cape Cod to visit a friend in the very typical Cape Cod province town, which is an old fishing mm. and whaling port. And, and I, did I feel like I've been stalking you. I was there too. No. <laughs> Not the same time, clearly. So, but you will know, actually, that it is... It's one of probably the best places in the world to see whales in the it's wild. It's beautiful, yeah. And then it's a very beautiful, yeah. exquisite... It's basically just a sandbank, like a curling... Um, arm held out into the Atlantic and but I didn't realize there were whales there I, I went out on this whale watch thinking well, this is going to be a kind of circus you know they kind of throwing flounder to the whales or something to like get them to perform like Ramu and of course I was standing on the prow of this boat as uh, within half an hour of going out from the port from Provincetown this 40 ton 40 foot humpback whale breached right in front of me this halo of sea spray around it like this barnacled angel with the biggest flippers the pectoral flippers in the in the, in the natural world it's just as though someone had pressed a pause button on, 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 on the video, you know. And that whale was looking at me. I could see its eye. So there was this kind of connection. And once that happens to you, you, you can't be the same again, really. Um, for me, it's, that's why I'm, you know, now, however many years, 22 years later, I'm still writing about whales, still chasing them. I'm totally obsessed. I'm, I'm a whale head. One of my friends called me a whale stalker. <laughs> <laughs> so I am... I am I am very obsessed with whales. And is there one particular species? I can't really say that in public because it will annoy the other whales. But between you and me, it's, it's sperm whales. Why? Because they've got the biggest brain on the planet. They have got a, a culture which I have felt. I've been in the water many times with sperm whales. And um, they are truly an organized cultural species whose communication, which is cultural and, and is vocalized in a series of clicks which are organized in a series of coders like uh, like morse code when you are in the water with them because they're actually their ears their sense of ultra traditional hearing mostly they feel through their bodies they feel feel through their bones the, uh, the sound is conducted through their jaws to to their eardrums so they feel one another through sound so their communication, their culture, their sense of being is to do with physical connection through the water, which is really interesting because their culture, obviously, they can't express themselves with fingers and hands and things like that, and they don't speak, obviously, in the way we do. And they, uh, So it, it, it's this sense that you are very aware when you're in the water with them. It's like whale internet. You know, it's like they're permanently locked into a kind of whale system of, of, of communication which is deeply expressive of their culture, of a matrilineal culture. You know, this is a, these are, most whales are matriarchal in, in, in social arrangements. And sperm whales, the, the whale that you and I drew when we were kids, mm. the big square Moby Dick with a little eye, 
And it's kind of crazy when you see them and that's what they do look like. So there's something very anthropomorphic about them because they almost look as though they're smiling and they have this little eye and they look sort of... But then they are deeply strange. They're antediluvian creatures. They're almost science fiction, you know. And they change shape and colour. Actually, they physically change shape to dive in the water. They draw their forehead. They've got this great big blunt forehead, you know, very pugilistic square forehead but when they dive they can draw it in to a kind of wedge shape so what looks sort of not very hydrodynamic at all becomes a, a great sort of like a plane like a like a wedge and they dive down and that's actually happening that's not just the refraction of the water looking no, no, in that, playing they, tricks they with your it, eye no 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 it's drawing it in also their rib cages collapse because they don't they're not breathing down there obviously they're storing the oxygen in their in their blood i recorded a sperm whale in the azores down for an hour and 47 minutes and they can be down two miles in depth you know the reason why they are also really enigmatic and these storied creatures from moby dick to whatever is because almost all of their lives is lived in the deep dark sunless you know the benthic depths of the ocean so there's you know there's only maybe 20 percent of the time that they spend at the surface they are so remote from us. They are so remote from our conception. We can talk more about astrobiology than we can talk about sperm whale culture in a way because it's just so difficult to study them. You know, it's very difficult to tag them. The tags come off. You know, we don't, we don't really know what they're doing. Obviously, they're feeding. It's still difficult to know how they feed. You know, we know that I have seen, I have seen sperm whales zapping very large fish with their sonar. The, the, the clicks can, can ramp up to like high decibels. It's the loudest sound produced by an animal in the world. And it acts as kind of stun gun. And I saw in, in New Zealand, Kaikoura in the South Island of New Zealand, a big sperm whale, male sperm whale, and they're really big, zapping this fish. And you could see it didn't have to touch the fish. It's like a ray gun or something, you know. So... And could you hear that? Were you recording the sound at the same time so no, you could we identify were, this was actually no, happening? We were at the surface, so we couldn't hear the clicks. We couldn't okay. hear what was happening. It's probably a good job we weren't, because it was probably very loud. When I dived with sperm whales off the Azores, I had to sign a, a waiver with the Azorean government saying I wouldn't bring any action for any damage done to my hearing by the whales. They're very, very loud. They're very loud. Um, I've been echolocated by them, you know, and you feel it moving through your body like a scanner, like an MRI scanner. And they're creating a, a three-dimensional picture of you in their heads. So they are feeling you. Mm. They're feeling you through their heads. We know that dolphins can tell whether a human female is pregnant before she knows she's pregnant. So they have this kind of extra sense, this sixth sense of apprehension and comprehension. You've got me wondering now how a dolphin reacts when it comes across a pregnant woman who doesn't know she is pregnant. <laughs> Does it do backflips? What does it do well, to indicate uh, this fact? It's sort of, it, unfortunately, because dolphins are kept captive, we've been able to do very detailed experiments on right. them. And they do t control experiments with females who aren't pregnant, females who are pregnant. And, and but, but they must behave in a certain way, do oh, they? Oh, I, yeah, they, will, they will indicate. They will poke, poke at the stomach. Oh, oh, yeah, no, I, they do that a lot. They, uh, uh, yeah, I mean... Dolphins are obviously very intelligent animals too. Now you're a fan of Moby Dick, Richard. I am indeed, Herman Melville, and mm. that's going back a long way now. But I begin to understand from Philip now 
why he has become fascinated with Durer, because Durer did what you did long ago, back in 1520. He went in search of a whale, just as you did, a beached whale in the Netherlands. And he traveled from Nuremberg all the way to the coast. Okay, the plague was around. There were other benefits from going, shall we say. Would you develop it for us a bit? Well, you're so right to say that, Richard, because... Actually, the way I was drawn into Jura is when I was in Cape Cod and I was... Melville mentions Jura two or three times in Moby Dick. He calls him this Dutch savage. I don't know why he called him as being Dutch. I don't know. Um, and he spoke about his scrimshaw. Um, the scrimshaw the sailors were doing, they kept, kept scratched on, on whale's teeth and bones as being like Jura engravings. quite interesting. But, um, and it was when I was in... New England, in Boston, actually, the Museum of Fine Arts had a display of Jura engravings, um, especially um, they had the, 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 the sort of Bible parables that he would engrave, but lots of those involved animals. And I could see this guy was drawing an animal in a totally unmedieval way, in a, in a very accurate way. So I started to become really interested, and then I learned a story that you've just told us about how he tried to see this whale. And it just seemed to me like a, you know, a version of Ahab pursuing the white whale, Moby Dick. And because there's a similarly fatal end <laughs> uh, for both. Or because he got a disease of some mysterious kind as a result, they say, of that visit. Did he really? I think it's quite clear he, he felt he did. The great reason why we can talk about Dura at all in any sort of degree of accuracy or depth is that he wrote a very detailed journal of that journey from Nuremberg to to the Netherlands, uh, and he talks about after he'd tried to go to Zeeland, which is a, a, a it was a, it's, it's actually a malarial region of Zeeland um, at that point, right? Uh, right uh, and 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 that he he seems now to us to exhibited the symptoms of, of malaria, of mm. what they used to call intermittent fever, does it? Because it comes and goes, doesn't it? I think malaria, and he did die eight years later. But whether or not it was definitely of malaria, but he certainly attributed it to that. Mm. Well, he, like yourself, was a Renaissance man in the famous phrase with so many talents in all kinds of ways. I can see why you would be drawn to him because you have such a wide range, creative writing professor and so forth. And this knowledge of whales, despite that, that's a long way from creative writing. I've met a lot of whale experts, but none of them could write at all well. I shouldn't say that. Some of them would be deeply insulted. But anyway, what was Dürer like? He was very aware that he had this extraordinary talent. I have this sort of story that I've sort of built up, and I, I can't prove it, but I know certain elements that are true, that when he set out from Nuremberg for the Netherlands, he had to apply for a passport through the Holy Roman Empire. And he went to, it was a, a prince bishop in, in Bamberg, a neighboring city to Nuremberg. And so that's where he went to start his mission. A fellow guest at the castle was Dr. Faustus. So there's quite, it's quite likely they met, and this is magical realist answer to your question in a way, is that I have this thing that may be like Faustus. Mm -hmm. He made a kind of Mephistophelian contract with whoever, with God or the devil, in his, the way he drew in nature. I mean, he'd been drawing about nature before that, but there's this, he has what to me, when I saw, when I started to explore Jura's work, and Luckily, I was writing the book or researching the book before all the lockdowns of, of COVID came into place. I was able to go to Madrid, Munich, 
Nuremberg, Paris, Amsterdam, and see Dürer's works in the flesh. And these works, like the, the painting of the hair, which is probably one of the most famous drawings he made. It was a painting, but it, it looks as though it's drawing. It was painted actually with a single hair brush, you know, the single hairs of the hair. They, they actually can't be moved now. From That's in the Albertina in, in Vienna. They're such fragile objects. When you see that there's a sort of communion there, which is very similar to the communion I had with the whale. When you look at the eye of the hair that Dürer drew, you see that he's painted the window of the kitchen in which the hair is sitting. And as the curator of the Albertina said to me, the next moment the hair was probably in the pot for lunch. So it rather, rather demystifies the romantic description I'm applying to it. But Dürer painted animals for their own sake. They weren't allegories, they weren't religious allegories, they weren't exaggerations of some... They weren't anthropomorphic at all. They were absolutely real. With the exception, perhaps, of the rhinoceros, which is his other famous engraving, because he never actually saw a rhinoceros. He only had reports of one that had landed at Lisbon in 1515. But he drew the rhinoceros, which until, practically until David Attenborough came along, that was how we believed rhinoceroses looked like. It's actually this great cratered, fissured, interplanetary being. It's almost like a kind of cyborg, this thing that he draws. But it's a beautiful abstraction, almost, of a, of a rhinoceros. Go back to the hair and the eye and the two white lines going down. Is that not, um, is there not a metaphysical element of this? Is he not connected? Why would, if you were painting a hair, representing it as in the wild, you certainly wouldn't put a reflection of the windows of a room into the eye. Now, we see, is it a reference to a church window? Or is, is he connecting that hair to us in some kind of metaphysical sense, do you think? I think that's a really, really interesting... That's the first time anyone said that to me, really. I, th I think it's quite possible. The hair has, con has con connotations of the Virgin Mary, we know, so there are religious uh, uh, elements of that. I think, obviously, there are things which he builds into those. But, you know, the thing is, that hair was never for sale. Uh, there, was never, there wasn't a commercial reason to do it. He was a person of faith, but of course he was going through the Reformation, you know. I mean, he, he knew Martin Luther and Erasmus. So it's difficult to know what he thought and believed. He was very interested in the humanists of, of the Renaissance, you know. And so he'd been to Italy, he'd been exposed to a lot of that sort of way of thinking, which isn't excluding Christianity, but I'm not sure what he thought to that degree. I just think that he knew he had this incredible talent. He really knew that. And he had it's a very technical talent in a way it's very german you know it's a german take on italian renaissance art in a way you know it's very accurate it's Vorsprung durch technique really you know it's it's very much like that he is so modern there's something very hard-edged about him and realistic which is it's very visible. You can go and look at a Jura. You can go in this building now, Chester Beach, go and look at an engraving by Jura, mm -hmm. and you will connect. No one has to come and explain mm -hmm. what that th that's about. Mm -hmm. No one has to give you an essay about it. You don't have to go to a, you know, art college to understand it. You understand what he's doing there. Mm -hmm. That is amazing. 500 years later, we're standing in front of Jura here in the middle of Dublin, mm -hmm. and we can say, yeah, I know what he's talking about. I recognise that animal. I recognise that state of being. Philip, I have interviewed lots of people, but I must say, talking to you has been extraordinary. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Richard. You've been a, a wonderful interrogator. 
Yeah, thank you very much indeed, Richard and Philip Hoare. That's pretty much all we have time for tonight. Thanks also to Niall Hatch, our broadcast coordinator, Jarlath Holland, and our researcher, John Bell O'Reilly. We'll do it all again next week. Until then, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney.